Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is, this is the word of the Lord. There are, I think, in every preacher's lives, there are texts that many preachers probably don't want to preach on. And, and as I look at my own heart and examine myself, this is a text that I do not want to preach upon. Uh, I should say maybe at least today on a baptism Sunday. On a Sunday where we are celebrating 502 years of the Reformation, this is a text that I don't want to preach on this morning. In fact, I wrestled with this text for several days, flip-flopping like a politician on whether I was going to preach this text or not. I even called my pastor back in Lancaster for advice. And, you know, he said, no matter what text you, pre- you choose to preach on, you're not going to be sinning. Uh, but he said, he said to me, I know you well enough to know that your instinct is to preach this text on Sunday. And he's right. It is my instinct, because here at Canal St. Leans, and really in the Presbyterian tradition, overall it's been our practice to do expository preaching. What that means is that we preach our way through God's Word, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And there's a great benefit to that, several benefits in fact. First, it helps all of us understand verses and passages of Scripture within their proper context. It prevents preachers from picking out verses and using them out of context to push their own agendas. When you go verse by verse, you have to preach the verse within its its context. So it really protects the preacher, and it protects the congregation from abusing Scripture. But another benefit, at least for myself, uh, is that preaching this way is an exercise in faith. I have to trust the power of the Word of God. The preacher, in going line by line and verse by verse, has to trust that the living and active Word of God truly is living and active, and that the Holy Spirit will indeed use the proclamation of the Word to speak to the congregation where they're at. I have to trust, ultimately, that this is the text that God Himself has ordained for me to preach here and now this morning, and trust that the Spirit will use it to minister to God's people and to call to the Good Shepherd any lost sheep among us. So here we are. Hebrews 10, 26-31, a hard portion of the book of Hebrews. A book, a portion of the book of Hebrews where if you've never worshipped with us before, never heard me preach, and this was the only sermon you heard me preach, you might be inclined to label me as a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But this is a portion of the book of Hebrews, a portion of the Word of God that needs to be preached because what we are looking at this morning, man's destiny apart from Jesus Christ, the cost of not clinging to Christ, the reality of the utterly perfect justice of the Holy God needs to be proclaimed. 
If we are to proclaim God's boundless mercy, if we are to proclaim God's amazing grace in saving dead sinners, then we need to see and we need to hear just what God in His mercy is sparing us from. We need to hear exactly what it is that rebellious sinners deserve and what it is that sinners, when they turn to Christ, when they turn to, to Christ in faith, receive from God in His grace. You cannot proclaim a God of mercy and grace if you are not willing to proclaim a God of justice and wrath. Now last week I said, the author of Hebrews, in verse 19 of chapter 10, ended his sort of theology lesson, his doctrinal discourse to the book of Hebrews. And starting in verse 19, he turns his attention to the practical, the life application of everything that he talked about in the book of Hebrews. And, and we heard last week how the Christian church, in light of the gospel, is called to do three things. We are called to draw near to God. That means that we are called to do what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, draw close with confidence to the throne of grace. And we draw near in a variety of different ways, but primarily the way that we draw near to God is through prayer and through what we are doing right here, right now, through gathered worship. The second thing we're called to do is to hold fast to our confession. That means we are to cling to Jesus Christ. The confession of the first century church when this book of Hebrews was written was the simple phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the truth that all of us must cling to for dear life. Because apart from Christ, there is no hope for our souls. The third thing we were called to do last week was to gather together. Gather together for worship. Gather together to encourage one another, to build each other up, to stir one another, one another on in love and in good works. And as we said last week, the main way, the primary way that we gather together to do these things is by attending Lord's Day worship, by what our culture calls going to church. So our text this week shows us the negative side of things. If we neglect to draw near, if we neglect to hold fast, if we neglect to meet together, if we fail to do these things, we run the risk of falling away from Christ. We run the risk of becoming apostate. Because it's through the means of drawing near, it's through the means of holding fast, it's through the means of gathering together that God feeds and nourishes our souls and strengthens our faith. The book of Hebrews is very concerned with apostasy, with falling away. In fact, it's the major driving factor behind this book. This book was written to a first century church made up of Jewish Christians who were being tempted to turn away from Christ and go back to the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. They were being tempted to abandon Christ's sacrifice for the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant. They were being tempted to be, abandon Jesus Christ as our great high priest for the earthly Levitical priesthood. They were tempted to abandon going into the true holy place, into the true throne room of God to go back to worshiping in the earthly temple. And so the author of Hebrews is continually calling these, G these Jewish Christians to not go back. Cling to Christ. Keep your anchor firmly planted in the gospel because Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the priests. He's the better sacrifice. He's the true and living temple. He is the fulfillment of all those things. And because Jesus is better and the fulfillment, you cannot turn your back on him. So throughout Hebrews, we have these warnings about falling away, about apostasy. And it's important to note for the author of Hebrews, apostasy does not concern a true Christian who has truly placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ and then falls away and loses their salvation. In fact, Hebrews directly teaches that that is impossible. Hebrews says, think what we heard earlier in chapter 10. Hebrews declares that through Christ's once offering of himself, he has perfected for how long? Just until the next time you sin? Just till the next time you have a wavering doubt of faith in your life? No. Hebrews says he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, our justification, our salvation has been accomplished at the cross. Christ's work is a finished work. It didn't just make salvation possible. It accomplished salvation once for all time for God's people. So these warnings about apostasy, they cannot possibly be talking about the idea that a true Christian can lose their salvation. Rather, apostasy in this book of Hebrews concerns those who would be part of the community of faith. People who are part of the local church who with their mouths make a profession of faith. Who in their minds know the truth of the gospel. Know the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done at the cross, and in His resurrection, and in His ascension into heaven. Those who know and even maybe believe it to be true that Jesus Christ is Lord, but who in their hearts are not trusting in Christ as Lord. They know it with their minds, but they fail to believe it in their hearts. That's who the author of Hebrews is addressing these warning passages to. And they are relevant. They are relevant for us today. Because there is not a church on the face of the planet that, that, that does not have somebody in their congregation who may profess with their lips but not believe in their hearts. Now we see that this is who the author of Hebrews is addressing right away in verses 26 and 27 where he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice how Hebrews frames this. If we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, this is a mental ascension to the truth. Nothing is said here about a true heart embracing of the truth. And this is important. This supports the idea that the people of the, that the author of Hebrews is addressing are those who hear and those who even know the truth, but do not embrace it in their hearts. I want to clarify what this phrase, if we go on sinning deliberately, means. Brothers and sisters, this does not mean that if you sin deliberately as a Christian, then you're not a Christian anymore. This is not talking about the Christian who struggles with sin, which is all of us. Nor is it talking about the Christian who may be battling a habitual sin. Who would be a Christian? if that's what this verse meant. Rather, keep in mind, again, the context of who the author is addressing in this portion. This verse is talking about those 
who hear and know the gospel, but instead of embracing in their hearts the risen Christ, they continue to reject the gospel and go on living a life of unrepentant, outright rebellion against God. Pastor Kent Hughes says that this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he writes, here's the point. This individual has received the knowledge of truth. The content of Christianity is true. He knows what God has done in Christ and he understands it, but he intentionally, knowingly rejects it and willfully continues in an unremitting state of sin as an apostate. That's who Hebrews has in mind here. And for that person, for that person, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. Why not? Because in rejecting the gospel, that person rejects the one sacrifice that truly saves. That person has rejected the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Apart from Christ and His sacrifice, there is no hope for salvation. Instead, what awaits, is what the author of Hebrews says here, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume all adversaries. This is hell. Brothers and sisters and friends, this is what awaits those who reject Christ. And it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible place. And we hate to even think about it, much less talk about it. But eternal damnation is the just and the righteous judgment of a perfectly holy God against those who reject Jesus Christ. Because apart from Christ... There is no atonement for sin. And sin, even one sin, is an infinite offense against the infinitely holy God. How dare we as creatures made from dust look at our Creator in the face and say, you have no right to rule over my life. You are not Lord of my life. I am Lord of my life. And that is exactly what we do when we sin. We are declaring to the eternal, self-sufficient, holy God, the God who made us, the God who sustains us, the one who holds our very lives in the palm of His hand, that He has no right to reign and rule over our lives. This is why sin is such a vile, infinite offense against His holiness and worthy of an eternity of just punishment. And then to see that in order to redeem us from sin, God did not spare what was most precious to Him, but rather gave Himself up for us, gave us His only beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, gave Him to us to make satisfaction for our sins on our behalf, and to see and hear that truth, and to reject it. How can there be any consequence for that rejection other than eternal damnation. Because what are we doing in rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? What are we doing when we hear the good news of the gospel, even acknowledge it as truth with our words and in our minds, but reject it in our hearts? The author of Hebrews tells us what we are doing in verse 29. We are first trampling underfoot the Son of God. We are rejecting the person of Jesus Christ. That's what that phrase means. And not only are we rejecting 
the person of Jesus Christ. We are showing him disdain. We are showing him hatred. The imagery here, the imagery that's used is one of taking your boot and putting it, if you could, Christ under your boot and stomping him into the ground and then rubbing him into the dust. That's what Hebrews says we do when we hear and recognize the gospel is true, but reject it. We are crushing Christ under our foot and we are grinding Him into the dust. The such rejection of Christ, the author of Hebrews says, is not only to trample Him underfoot, but also to profane the blood of the covenant. It's not only a rejection of the person of Jesus Christ, it's as we see in this phrase, a rejection of the work of Jesus Christ. Not only are you grinding Christ into the ground, you are spitting on His bloody, crucified body. You are rejecting and mocking the cross of Christ. You are telling Him that His once for all time perfect sacrifice, His own flesh and blood, His agonizing suffering on the cross is a worthless work. You are making a mockery out of the death of Jesus. When you acknowledge the truth of the, of the gospel and you reject that truth in your heart, you are desecrating the very cross of Christ. And finally, in hearing and acknowledging the gospel to be true, but rejecting it in your heart, you are not only scorning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you are scorning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29 says, you are outraging the Spirit of grace. You are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which the Gospels of Mark and Matthew tell us is the unforgivable sin. You are doing what the Pharisees and the scribes did when they saw Jesus perform miracles with their own eyes and said, that's a work of the devil. You are ultimately saying that the work of Christ, which the Holy Spirit bears witness to, is a work of Satan. Again, if I can quote Ken Hughes, he said, to insult the spirit of grace is an immense act of hubris and arrogance. What happened? What had happened is that the Holy Spirit had come to the apostate, witnessed to him about the spiritual realities, and courted his soul. But the apostate rejected the Spirit's witness with outrageous arrogance. Such persons deliberately close their eyes to the light just as the Pharisees had done when they attributed the Spirit's work of mercy and power to Beelzebub. The apostate rejects the person and work of Christ and they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of life. And it's no wonder then that this passage of Hebrews closes with the phrase, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is fearful indeed for those who ultimately reject Christ because what awaits the one who rejects Christ is, as verse 27 says, a fury of fire that will consume. And that fire, brothers and sisters and friends, is an eternal fire that is far worse than we could ever imagine. Tim Keller said that just as he believed that the language of streets of gold in heaven was describing something far more wonderful and glorious than we could ever imagine. The language and the imagery of fire and brimstone 
is describing something far worse than we could ever imagine. It's terrifying judgment. And maybe some of you here this morning, hearing this message, maybe it's dawning on you that this is what awaits you. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed once for man to die, and then comes judgment. And perhaps you're realizing that that truth is a terrifying reality for you. And I want to say this to you. It doesn't need to be your reality. Because if you are here this morning and you are drawing breath into your lungs and you have life in your flesh, it means you still have time. You have time to repent of your sin to the Holy God. To acknowledge to Him that you are indeed a sinner in need of a Savior. You still have time to not only recognize with your minds the truth of the Gospel, but also in your heart, embrace it. And if you do that, here's the covenant promise we heard in this baptism. God will be your God and you will be His child. You will be saved. God's throne will no longer be a throne of judgment for you, upon which sits the God who will pour out His vengeance. But rather that throne becomes a throne of grace upon which sits a loving Heavenly Father who will pour out upon you all the riches of heaven. If you trust in Jesus Christ, not just believe the Gospel is true, but put your faith That means your trust and your hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You will have a sacrifice for your sins. You will have the forgiveness you need. You will have the perfection you lack. And you will be given the gift of everlasting life in the presence of the Holy God. In just a moment, we're going to sing the hymn, In Christ Alone. I want you to think about the words we're singing in that hymn in light of what we just heard. You know, when the Presbyterian Church USA, the denomination that we split out of in the 70s, when that denomination uh, was forming their new hymnal a few years back, they wanted to include the hymn in Christ alone. But they wanted to make a crucial change to the hymn. They wanted to change the line that's found in verse 2 that says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that line, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God is magnified. Now that's very true. The love of God was indeed magnified at the cross of Jesus Christ. But why? Why would that denomination want to change that line about the wrath of God being satisfied. It's because there are many, there are many today, brothers and sisters, who claim to be Christians, who simply do not like the idea that God has wrath towards sin. They want to do what I said in the opening phrase of this sermon. They want to talk about a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy and amen. He is all of that. But you cannot proclaim those truths if you're not willing to proclaim that there is justice from the Holy God against those who rebel against Him. The idea of God's wrath is not repulsive. We would never want to serve a God who did not punish what is evil. 
He is a just God. And we can rejoice as His children in that. And know that He will execute holy justice against those who profane His name and harm His people and defile His good creation. You know what happened when the editors of the hymnal uh, went to the copyright holders of In Christ Alone, Keith and Kristen Getty? They rejected the changes. They rejected the edits because the Gettys know that you cannot possibly talk about the good news of the gospel, about grace and mercy and love without first talking about the grave seriousness of our sin and our rebellion and the wrath of God that we justly deserve. And they also know, and I pray that all of you know and believe and put your hope in this truth, that upon the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. It was satisfied. It was poured out on Jesus Christ. If you ever look at the footnotes to the Apostles' Creed, that line about Christ descending into hell, that's what that line is about. Christ descending into hell is a reference to His suffering on the cross as the full weight of God's wrath was poured out upon Him as He made satisfaction for the sins of His people. That's what that line means. God's wrath, His justice, was satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so as we sing our closing hymn, I hope and pray that all of us here this morning can sing the words of this hymn with full assurance that God's wrath towards your sin was taken by Christ. And God's justice has found its satisfaction in Christ's sacrifice. And I hope and pray that all of you can sing with boldness and confidence and full assurance of faith, the words of this hymn that say, and as Christ stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ.